Hello friends, this is Rob Lundberg from the Real Issue Apologetics Ministry and the Real Issue Podcast. As we enter the Thanksgiving holiday week, we want to say that we are, we thank God for you. We're thankful for you, our audience, and thank you for your support over these last three years of our doing the podcast. We haven't really had a chance to thank you, but we want to do that in this show today and uh, just share with you that God is doing some wonderful things, and we're going to share with you a show, I think, next week. I think I'm going to have my wife on next week. We'll talk about uh, just what we believe the direction of our ministry is all about. But as we go into the holiday, the Thanksgiving holiday, will you pray for us? Will you pray that God will extend our reach? Will you pray that we'll reach more people with this podcast and everything that we do online? As you go and you spend time with your family and your friends, there are many things I'm sure that you'll be thankful for as well. We thank God for you, and we ask that you have a blessed Thanksgiving holiday. This show today is going to be a repeat show from our show that we did earlier in the year on social justice versus biblical justice. I pray that it speaks to you with everything that's going on in our culture, and I pray that God will bless you as you share it with others. Thank you for listening to The Real Issue Podcast, and we'll be back with you next week. And as always, go out and give them heaven. In culture today, we hear a lot about the social justice movement. But what does the Bible have to say about the social justice movement? And is it really biblical? What does Scripture have to say about social justice and the Christian? Join us on The Real Issue Podcast as we answer these questions and address a whole lot more. And you are listening to The Real Issue Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, This week, we are addressing probably a hot-button topic because this has been something that a a colleague of mine and I have been discussing uh, off and on here and there about things that are going on in the church. And you hear a lot of talk about social justice. And what I want to do is address the social justice ideology that is permeating culture and also creeping into the church. You know, there's a view of social justice that is biblical, but what if I were to tell you that there's a view of social justice that has crept into the church that is being promulgated by some postmodern or emergent Christians that are coming in, sneaking in at the altar of God, and going and talking about a social justice that really is not biblical and has no compatibility with biblical Christianity. Last week I talked to you about socialism and uh, and communism and whether or not those are uh, biblical, uh, is there any biblical compatibility with those? And we came to the conclusion that it's no. And this is actually springboarding off of that because we're going to find out that the social justice movement is totally the antithesis of, of biblical theology. Now, 
before I get into discussing the, the Christian view of social justice, let me deal with this whole idea of the um, of the the social justice movement that is trying to smell Christian. Okay, so before we do that, I think maybe what I need to do, like anything, we need to basically define some terms, and then uh, I'll give you a synopsis. We'll go to a break. And then I'll come back with an analysis and then come back and share with you uh, what we mean by, uh, in a biblical context, what we mean by social justice. Now, when we talk about social justice, there is a lot of hubbub about it. You know, we need to understand that social justice is, is really politically charged in our culture. It is a concept that is not really able to be divorced from its modern-day context. When we talk about social justice, it is often used as a rallying cry for many people on the left side of the political spectrum. Uh, there is a term known as egalitarianism, where a friend of mine on Facebook, Facebook was talking about being an egalitarian. And you have to be very, very careful with terminologies today. But one, I'll get to that in just a moment. But as I just mentioned, social justice is often a rallying cry for many on the left of the political spectrum. And this, what we're going to talk about here, is basically defining social justice first. And then we'll get into some of the nitty-gritties of the movement itself. Now, social justice is actually a concept that some use to describe a movement toward socially, uh, toward looking for a socially just world. Now, when we look at it from this context, though, social justice is based on the concepts of, quote, human rights, end quote, and equality, quote, unquote. And it involves a greater degree of this thing called economic egalitarianism through the progressive taxation, income redistribution, and even property redistribution. Now, these policies claim, uh, their aim and their claim, if you will, is to achieve what developmental economists refer to as more equality of opportunity than what currently may exist in some societies, and to manufacture equality of outcome in cases where incidental equalities appear in a procedurally just system. Now, the key word here is this word egalitarianism. What does this word mean? Well, this word, coupled with the phrases income redistribution and property distribution, and equality of outcomes says a great deal about the social justice movement. Egalitarianism as a political doctrine, not as a theological doctrine, not as a, as a view of looking at the Bible, but as a political doctrine, essentially promotes the idea that all people should have the same or equal political, social, economic, and civil rights. This idea is based on the foundation of inalienable human rights enshrined in the documents of the Declaration of Independence. Now, the, the, 
as a doctrine of econ as, uh, dealing with the economy, egalitarianism is actually the driving force behind socialism and communism. It is economic egalitarianism that seeks to remove the barriers of economic inequality by means of redistribution of wealth. We heard this during uh, the last administration's uh, rule, uh, talking about uh, what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine and, and so on and so forth. Basically, it belongs to the government. That's communism, socialism. We see this implemented in basic social welfare programs where progressive tax policies take uh, proportionately more money from wealthy individuals in order to raise the standard of living for people who lack the same means. In other words, the government takes from the rich and gives to the poor, kind of like the Robin Hood effect. But however, uh, that doesn't work always that way. Now, what is the problem with this? The problem with this is uh, twofold. First, there is a mistaken premise in economic egalitarianism which, which the rich have become wealthy by exploiting the poor. Much of the socialist literature of the past 150 years promotes this premise, and this may have even been primarily the case back with when Karl Marx wrote his uh, Communist Manifesto, and even today, it may be the case of some time, but certainly not all of the time. The second is that socialist programs tend to create more problems than they solve. In other words, they just don't work. I mentioned that, I think, last week. Welfare, which uses tax money from the public, or tax revenue, if you will, to supplement the income of the underemployed or the unemployed typically has the effect of recipients becoming dependent on the government handout rather than trying to improve their own situation. Yes, fiscal responsibility is definitely, definitely important. In every place where socialism and or communism has tried to uh, been tried on a national scale, it has failed miserably and it has failed to remove the class distinctions in society. Isn't it interesting that communism and socialism try to take out a classless society, but nowhere do we see this anywhere in the world, let alone, let alone the useful idiots that are trying to push this through in the United States. Instead, all it does is replace nobility uh, or the common man distinction with a working class distinct or political distinction. Now, when we look at this whole thing, and if we were to put a synopsis on this for Christians, Christians' concerns for social justice actually also has a rich history rooted in the Lord's commands and compassion revealed in Scripture. Biblically, justice is ground ultimately in God's character, but we don't necessarily see that with theological social justice programs that are rooted and tied to the government. Now, when we look at this, we see today that with Christians, there is this new form of social justice. New in the sense that it is grounded not in the universal 
shared standard of God's character or God's word, the Bible, but on a different basis formed on answers to these questions. The question will be, can these new basises for social justice preserve justice, human dignity, and equality, or will they undermine them? Now, if we really look at some of the key uh, Christians like Brian McLaren, who are embracing these new basises for social justice, we're also going to look and see at some of the moral qualities uh, such as justice that cannot be sustained on on them. And then we'll look at the gospel itself when it comes to this uh, whole thing. And again, this is, will be the Christian response to this. Now, when we look at this, uh, we know that Christians, we base our social justice on God's standard. But what about Christians in this new social justice program? Over the last several decades, there have been many voices that have that began this new approach. People like Tony Campolo or Jim Wallace, that's W-A-L-I-S, not my good friend Jay Warner Wallace, but Jim Wallace, and also a guy by the name of Ron Sider, S-I-D-E-R. However, there are many newer ones whose influence has basically transformed and transformed this movement and spread it greatly. And I'm thinking of folks like I just mentioned, a guy by the name of like Brian McLaren and others known as the Emergence. This, you don't hear much of the Emergent Church lately, but the guys who were involved in the Emergent Church are right in the middle of this. Folks like Tony Jones and Doug Padgett and Rob Bell. While they may be dismissed by evangelicals as as charlatans or heretics back in approximately, say, 2010, that does not mean their influence has abated. Quite the contrary. They now publish with major publishing houses, for example, like Harper One and Random House, to extend their reach. They have established their own ministries, and uh, some of them have gotten their PhDs, thus enabling them to mentor students and even in the seminary. So, you know, you get the degree, you get the seminary, you get your foot in the door for uh, greater influence. And, of course, the schools and the, and the seminaries, the, the colleges and the seminaries, they have a 30-year influence over the, over the culture with every student that they touch. Now, these, these men that I just mentioned, they already have been producing a profound shaping influence even on youth ministers of all things. Of course, when you have most youth ministries today, nothing but strumming guitars and eating pizza and going out and helping the poor. You know, helping the poor is great, but why are you doing this? What is your biblical basis? Of course, if you're wrapped up in the social justice movement of the emergence, you're not being biblical. You're being uh, uh, heretical, for lack of a better term. You're doing it for yourself, basically. Now, when we um, look at this influence on youth ministers and their views, these guys' views have sh shaped many youth today. Basically, uh, your, your Gen Zs and some of your millennials, and, and then you also have 
those uh, Christian campus ministries that are wrapped up in this whole social justice movement as well. And that's why you need groups like Ratio Christi and a, a good, strong inner varsity and, and crew to help uh, stem the tide and give a good biblical response. But you see, the more developed views of these emergents have deeply have a deeply practical ethical focus. You know, they do have an ethical focus rather than a focus in what we what we call biblical orthodoxy. So when we when we look at biblical orthodoxy, these folks have actually stay uh, swayed away from biblical orthodoxy to this uh, dealing with uh, praxy or orthopraxy, if you will, and in the in particular a stress of social justice. Now they strategically address justice in a number of social issues. What are those issues? Well, it includes racism, and includes colonialism, sexism, environmentalism, and poverty and economic exploitation. Now, when you look at these. There's a biblical answer to racism. There's a biblical answer to sexism. There's even a biblical answer to environmentalism, poverty, economic uh, issues, as well as colonialism. Now, what kinds of views do they now hold uh, as far as like on the lines of what is real and basically what we can know? What is real is, is a big word like ontology and epistemology is like, how do we know what we know? Well, if we do this, we need to look at it from the perspective of ontologically first. They accept this thing called physicalism. R. Scott Smith has written a great paper where I'm getting some of this information on this, which means that we are nothing more than just physical beings. We do not have souls according to this view of physicalism. One of the reasons for this, or one reason for this, is they reject essential natures, thinking that, that a dualism of body and soul has led in part to, the, to a gospel that stresses people going to heaven when they die. But, you know, when you look at their story, when to, in their mind, which they think is the received version of evangelicals today. It totally undermines living for Christ in the here and the now, including seeking justice in all dimensions of life as we faithfully follow Jesus's gospel story. Now, when they there's a theological or philosophical point to this as well, and is known as this, this view of God known as panentheism. Everyone, in other words, in all creation, including God's sacred ecosystem, is in God, not separate from God, where God is transcendent in a, in a theistic worldview. Panentheism says everything is in God, and of course, if that's the case, then God is changing, God changes, God learns things, and of course, that's not biblical at all when we, when we look at that. Now, where are we here? Yes, uh, therefore, um, when, you, when you talk about spiritual warfare, when you talk about the spiritual realm, angels and demons cannot exist in this type of environment. 
which allows uh, the focus on human evils or such as injustices. It is man who is going and taking uh, the bull by the horns, if you will, and handling all the injustices based as based on what he has think. Now, when it comes to ethics, when it comes to ethics, when we deal with this, humans need not to repent of their sins and trust Jesus' atoning work on the cross for their salvation in order to become in, come into a relationship with God. Being already in God does not separate us from him, according to this panentheistic worldview. Instead, we need to live out the story of Jesus with one another in community and beyond. You see how <clears throat> this social justice movement separates uh, a proper look at the gospel, that man needs a savior. Man is a sinner in need of a savior, and only once his being has been changed can he really understand what it means to love God and love his neighbor as himself. You know, when we look at this, uh, we are not in God until we are in Christ. So, um, according to this view, <clears throat> they 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 re they reject universal qualities. Besides being uh, shareable, universals would be one in many. Consider the fact of human nature in itself; it is one thing. Yet, when it is instanced in many particular humans, it becomes each person's eth essence. The same would apply to justice or human dignity. We typically have understood that these things to be shareable universal qualities. Now, when you look at this view, in this view of dualism between the quality itself and its many instances, when you look at this, McLaren and others have rejected many dualisms, including that posed by universals. Instead, they have embraced this thing called nominalism. Now, if the easiest way to explain nominalism is if we were to look at a maple tree, we were to look at an elm tree, an oak tree, and we just look at it and say, that's a tree, that's a tree, that's a tree, and any other types of trees a pine tree, that's a tree, and not describe it what it is. You know, it's all the same thing. It's just a tree. It's the same way with the whole idea of justice or being human. What does it mean to be human? Well, it means to be human that you're human, that I'm human, everybody else listening to me and the sound of my voice is human. But there isn't a common human nature, there are just particular humans that we call humans. The same holds for justice or human dignity and in this panentheistic worldview, this social justice worldview. There are just particular things like justice, 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 and so on. Yet there is nothing in these individual cases that makes them all instances of the same thing. Also, when we look at this nominalism, it fits their rejection of various dualisms, including the material and the immaterial. You see, if God is in everything, God is necessarily not supernatural. God is actually what we see in front of us, according to 
the pantheist worldview as a universal God's communicable attribute of justice itself would be immaterial, yet it can be instanced in many humans. However, nominalism holds that very that everything is located in the here and the now in space and time. That means the kinds of things that exist, at least in creation, including justice, would be material material things or sense perceptible things. Now, when we look at this epistemologically speaking, how do you know what you know? Epistemology is the study of of knowing uh, the study of how you how we know what we know. When we look at this. Those that are involved in this kind of social justice movement, they believe that our situatedness is so extensive that we cannot know reality directly as, as it truly is. So to even have an experience requires a meta-narrative interpretation. Moreover, our knowledge is inseparable from our language, which is expressed in the narrative of given people. For them... That is the gospel story, not the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins in time space. He was, he was uh, crucified for our sins. He died for our sins, buried, rose on the third day, according to the scriptures in time space history. The, the gospel is actually a conceived story as they interpret it, not as it is interpreted in the scriptures. So when you deal with ethics, ethics is embedded in the Christian story and community, and it cannot be pried off from them. Thus justice and human dignity are what they are in light of that context, yet they are not universals that exist and transcend all people. In other words, ethics, uh, you know, the, you know the, the moral law of God transcends all people. In other words, the, the fact that God is a moral lawgiver, his morals are absolute for every person, every place in the every place in the world and all times. It's not so with this social justice movement. There is no transcendence uh, of of all people. However, these emergents are also keenly attuned to the dynamics of power and its abuses in oppressing people something that is highly relevant to the new basis for social justice. So how do these emergents actually draw on the same kinds of principles at work in the new social justice? Well, we need to look at the philosophical underpinnings, and we'll be back with that in just a moment. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. The famous question, what is truth? Yes, Pilate. (laughs) 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 I'm not Jesus. (laughs) It's ironic that the truth was standing before him. He didn't recognize it, but truth is what corresponds to reality. Truth is telling it like it is. Truth is what matches its object. Um, If I say... I have a red shirt on, it's true because in fact there is a a red shirt there that I can point to. Uh, Truth is telling it like it is. If you don't tell it like it is, it's an error. If you do tell it like it is, it's true. How do we know that's a definition of truth? Because not only is that what philosophers have uh, discovered the nature of truth is, but 
You can't deny it without affirming it. If you say, well, I don't think truth is telling it like it is, I'd say, was that telling it like it is? You just told it like it is, saying you don't need to tell it like it is. Uh, you can't avoid philosophy being a correspondence view of truth. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. So I know that outside of being a detective, you served for some time as a pastor as well. You've had a unique look as a layperson and as ministry and now as a Christian apologist to really be able to see the church from different angles. What kind of advice would you give to pastors for equipping their church in this melting pot culture of beliefs so that we can see less people making a mass exodus from the church? Yeah, I think it's a challenge. And first of all, I have a heart for pastors. I think what they face is, is a, really an incredible task. And, and, and it's, uh, can any one human do, even do this job anymore? I don't know. But but I can tell you that I think it's, it's important for pastors to realize there's two prongs you've got to prepare your people for. One is our, 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 our congregations prepared to make a case against a world that doesn't even accept any of our claims. But the other problem, of course, is internal, is do we even know enough about what our system teaches, about what our system claims? Do we have enough systematic theology to be able to withstand uh, error that's in the church? So you've got two fronts. One, the outside world is pressing against us, and the inside turmoil we sometimes see with people who hold errant views. So I think you have two, two prongs there. But I recently, it was interesting, I recently did a, a conference at a church that gave an entire month every summer to an apologetics five-week series or four-week series. And I thought, what, my gosh, think about it, giving out a four, four weeks out of 52 to apologetics. I think in the end, all of us as church leaders are gonna have to decide what percentage of Christian case-making should warrant in our calendars each year. And we can talk a lot about wanting to change the course of our churches or wanting to get our, our people. All of our changes have to begin with a calendar. We gotta say to ourselves, okay, so if this is important to us, you know, if I wanna know, Bobby, what's important to you, I need to look at your checkbook and your calendar. Because what you do and what you spend your money on are probably what you're, you're passionate about. And as a church, too, I think we need to do the same thing. What are we spending our time on and then what are we giving our money to? That'll tell us a lot about who we are as a people. So I think my, my encouragement for pastors is, I know it's a big, tough job, but at some point we're probably all gonna have to make a decision about what percentage of our church life we're gonna give over to the defense of the gospel, to preparing our people to make a, a, the case for Christ. And I think that's really the challenge we all have. I think, I think we just should kind of stand tall to that challenge and embrace it rather than, than hand it off to somebody else. Again, we write books on apologetics. I would love for pastors to become the books on apologetics for their congregations. beauties of doing a podcast and even doing it on audacity and pre-recording it is the fact that you can go back 
and listen to it over and over again and go and say, hey, what did he just say in that first section? I just realized that we um, this is going to be a little bit longer than uh, what that we were, uh, what we normally do because I, and I think it's important because of the, the material that we're dealing with, you know, because folks, I don't know whether you realize it or not, but Christianity is really being affected, affected, not in it to where it is no longer in its effectiveness in the church. And yes, I'm kind of using a play on words here, affective versus effective. Affective means it's being touched by something, and effective is that we're supposed to be reaching out and touching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is being uh, pretty much a challenge today because of the fact that the church has be is being corrupted by the secular city with this social justice movement. Now, not all churches are involved in this, please understand, I don't want you to, you know, badmouth the church and everything, but you got to be a sheepdog. You can go and be reactionary all you want. This is not a reactionary show. This is just basically going and saying, this is what's out there, folks. You need to pay attention to it. And if you're in a church and you embrace this type of social justice movement, I want you to email me at realissueapologetics at yahoo.com and take me on on this because I'd love to engage you with, with this whole thing on, on why, it's, why it is not biblical, why it is bankrupt philosophically, wrapped in, panent wrapped in a blanket of panentheism and basically totally counter the, the social view of the Bible, which I will wrap the show up with today. But again, you can go back and listen to the very beginning and go back and take copious notes, if you will. And I'm going to have some resources at the in the description of this so that you can go and look at that article as well. R. Scott Smith has written a great article where he goes and names names and takes no prisoners. And this is some of the information that I've gotten as well as some other sources for this show today. Now, when we look at the philosophical underpinnings of the social justice movement, if you will, what are those social, what are those key assumptions? Well, there are some key assumptions being made by those of the new basises for the social justice movement. One of the several differences in the outcomes in Western societies, such as economics, sex or gender, race, the environment, or others are due to immoral discrimination, usually against peoples of groups, or groups of people, I should say. Now, you see this a lot with regards to the whole issue of human rights with those who are embracing a sexual dysphoria of gender. You go and say, well, their being rights are violated, or if you embrace this, thank you for listening to this. If you are embracing a homosexual lifestyle, I want you to know, I want to thank you for listening. I want to let you know also that we love you, but you weren't born that way, and that you already have the rights under the Constitution that have been given to you, and that this is not a civil right matter, but this is what the social justice movement tries to push. Now, they say these things are evil, and that have, that have been embedded in social structures. Now, with regards to embedded in social structures, the social structures, as far as calling them evil, would be evangelical Christianity from a biblical sense. And of course, that we don't look at, we don't look at 
who you or we don't look at what you do as being who you are. They also assume that these groups have been oppressed by the powerful and they need to be liberated from their oppression. Now, where does this come from? Well, in many respects, the new social justice draws exclusively from this thing called critical theory. Critical theory, if you want a good resource on critical theory, look up Neil Shenvey and look up uh, Google Neil Shenvey and critical theory. He's, he's got some good information on, on critical theory. Now, the origins of critical theory began in the Frankfurt School with many German philosophers and social theorists in the Western e European Marxist tradition, such as Max Horkheimer. According to him, a critical theory seeks, to, seeks emancipation from slavery, from domination and oppression to liberate humans to create a world which satisfies their needs and their powers. For critical theory, a key goal is decreasing domination and increasing freedom in all their forms. There's a second view on this, too, with regards to the, so, the philosophical underpinnings. For Horkheimer and Karl Marx before him, reason becomes historicized. That is, our knowledge and thought is historically conditioned. As, not, as a nominalist kind of view, historicism stresses particular standpoints while rejecting universal truths and ahistorical direct access to reality. Critical theory focuses on particular historical events not, and not abstract universal ideas which determine cultural phenomena. This is much like the epistemological underpinnings uh, by McLaren and other emergent church leaders. There's a third idea here with this philosophical ideology, and that is, in terms of ontology, Horkheimer continued Marx's term, turn into materialism. This is like McLaren's and other emergents' embrace of physicalism. Although these emergents, Horkheimer, also like these emergents, I should say, Horkheimer embraced nominalism about humans rejecting a universally common nature. Humans seem to be embedded in nature as though they're nothing but material beings, and thus it seems they do not transcend nature, which they could if they were made not just of matter. For critical theory, the new social justice, ethics readily flows from these factors and perhaps the most obviously, um, most obviously from the goal to liberate people from oppression. See, that's the whole thing. If you see the the whole idea of people being liberated from oppression, oppression, think Marxism, because Marxism is a vicious circle. You have a group of people oppressing and pressing the lower bourgeoisie, if you will, that's the lower class. You have the upper class, which is the Politburo. The Politburo goes and oppresses, and the only way that there can be any type of liberation is through revolution. You see it with feminist theology, you see it liberation theology, you see it with critical theory, you also see it in this social justice 
ideology. Now, when you, when you look at this, knowledge is drawn from a socially embodied setting, and humans are embedded in these settings in nature. Ethics, too, is socially based. But due to the rejection of any moral universals, justice and human dignity cannot be immaterial entities. Instead, they are, or there, there would be many particular actions that we could group as just, and yet they do not share anything literally in common, perhaps a word that we use, and that would be, it's just, if you will. So, when we go and look at this, I want to turn now to what can a Christian do with regards to this whole idea of social justice. I mean, I'm going to give you Scott Smith's link to this so you can see some of his other analyses as well, but I want to deal with this whole idea from a biblical perspective. What then is the Christian view of social justice. The Bible teaches that God is a God of justice. We have no problem with that as evangelical Christians. In fact, all his ways are justice, according to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4. Furthermore, the Bible supports the notion of social justice in which concern and care are shown to the plight of the poor and afflicted. You can check out Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18, 24, 17, and Deuteronomy 27 and verse 19. You know, the Bible often refers to the fatherless. It refers to the widow and the orphan or the sojourner. That is, people who are not able to defend or fend for themselves and have no support system. The nation of Israel was commanded by God to care for societies less fortunate, and their eventual failure to do so was partly the reason for their judgment and expulsion from the land and even going into Babylon for, their, for the captivity. You know, when you look at Jesus, Jesus being the God-man, his ultimate payment on the cross was for yours and my justification. And we read in the Olivet Discourse, he mentions caring for it, the least of these. In Matthew 25 and verse 40, and in James's epistle, he expounds on the nature of true religion in James 1 verse 27, where he says, that, you know, that what true religion really is. So, if by social justice we mean that society is, uh, has a moral obligation to, com to, com to care for those less fortunate, folks, that is correct. We have no problem with that. But when you know that there is a God, and we know that God knows that this is going on, he commanded Israel, and due to the fall, we know, folks, there'll be widows, there'll be the fatherless, there'll be orphans, there'll be sojourners in society, but God also has made provisions in the Old and New Covenants, that's the Old and New Testament, to care for these outcasts of society. The model of such behavior is Jesus himself. Now these emergent folks think that they're acting on Jesus, but they have a faulty epistemology, they have a faulty view of egalitarianism, 
they don't have a complementary view that man is created in the image and likeness of God, and they hold a view a view of panentheism, which is a faulty epistemological starting point on God's existence and how he interacts and intervenes in culture. But you know, when we look at this, Jesus himself, who reflected God's sense of justice, uh, he brought the gospel message even to the outcasts of society. Christians, the notion of, of social justice is of social justice is very different from the contemporary notion of social justice that we see in our culture today. The biblical exhortations to care for the poor are more individual than societal. The other, in other words, each Christian is encouraged to do what he can to help the, to the least of these. The basis for such biblical commands is found in the second and greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Folks, if you do not love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, you cannot love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot separate the great commandment of loving God, heart, soul, and mind from doing the second part of it, from loving your neighbor as yourself. It's just not biblical, okay? Today's notion of social justice replaces the individual with government, which is through taxation and other means and, re and re redistribution of wealth. This policy doesn't encourage out, uh, does not encourage giving out of love, but encourages resentment from those who see their hard-earned wealth being taken away. Another difference is that the Christian worldview of social justice doesn't assume the wealthy are beneficiaries of ill-gotten gain. Wealth is not evil in a Christian mindset or a Christian worldview, but there is a responsibility and an expectation to be a good steward of one's wealth because all wealth comes from God. Today's social justice operates under the assumption that the wealthy exploit the poor. The third difference is that under a Christian concept of stewardship, the Christian can give to the charities he or she wants to support. For example, if a Christian has a heart for the unborn, he or she can support pro-life agencies, and I would encourage us to do that even today in the culture war where life is at stake in the womb. It's been that way for a long time, I will admit, but I want to let you know that um, we need to ramp up our support for uh, pro-life agencies and all at this time. So, you know, we can also uh, support not just uh, pro-life tendencies, but we can also, with our monies, but also our time and our talents. Under the contemporary form of social justice, it is those in power within the government who decide who receives the redistribution of wealth. We have no control over what the government does with our tax money. And more often than not, that money goes to charities that you and I might not deem worthy. Basically, what we see today, and I'll wrap this up before we, before we close. What we see today is that there is a tension between a God-centered approach to social justice and a man-centered approach to social justice. I've laid out for you in this show today in detail 
how Scott Smith laid that out for us with regards to what that man-centered social justice is. It is panentheistic, not biblical, biblical theism. The epistemological and ontological starting points are man-centered, and the fact that there is no supernatural means or supernatural and divine intervention with regards to the social movement that we see today. We see oppression. We do not see liberation. We do not see a biblical base. When we see that this tension, this tension between a God-centered approach to social justice and a man-centered approach, the man-centered approach sees the government in the role of a savior, seeking to bring an uh, un, unreachable utopia, if you will, through government policies. And if you have a church that is actually involved in handshaking with the government, that church is deceived in reaching out. If it thinks it is reaching out with the gospel, it is not reaching out with the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and he rose on the third day, according to the scriptures. It is a man-centered, ill-gotten gain gospel that is not biblical. The God-centered approach sees Christ as Savior, bringing heaven and earth to heaven to earth when he returns. At his return, Jesus Christ will restore all things and execute perfect justice. But until then, Christians need to express God's love and God's justice by showing kindness and mercy to those who are less fortunate to us. You know, the Christian ethic is, is an ethic of love. Love God with our heart, all our soul, all our mind. Love our neighbor as ourself. And Jesus commanded his disciples, love one another as I have loved you. For by this they will know that you are my disciples. And then we take the great commandment and the disciples' commandment from Jesus to go out and engage a society that is dying and without the gospel. Folks, you and I have an unchanging gospel, and we need to take that unchanging gospel in a rapidly changing world. Will you join us in doing that. You know, you can go to Rob Lundberg Apologetics if you'd like to make a donation. You can go to our donate link and help us keep this podcast going. Also keep other various ministry ideas going. We have an idea for a, um, a, 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 a joint venture ministry for, for what we do ministry-wise. I am seeking team members in the very near future uh, to run this by them. It is known as the Center for Public Christianity. And our goal is to get the gospel into various circles of society that we might be able to go and win others to Jesus Christ. Will you join us in that? Will you join us at least in praying for that? Also, we're keeping the real issue uh, apologetics ministry going with this, but this is something that came to mind. I believe the Lord gave it to me. I will confess that I, I saw the term from my friend Andy Bannister at RZIM Canada, and I mean, actually Scotland for uh, Solus uh, CPC, Center, uh, Center for 
public Christianity. He's got a, he's a missionary in uh, Scotland. But you know what? We are a couple elections away from a secular society that will be totally unrecognized as a as a Christian nation if the church does not get out from behind the eight ball. Our ministry is to help you. Pray also for our Saturday evening groups. This Saturday evening, I'll be speaking on how to recognize uh, a faulty cultic system and other false systems that are creeping into the church. If you are in the Spotsylvania area, you can instant message me or email me at realissueapologetics at yahoo.com, and we will give you the address for that. It is basically our Center for Public Christian Thought in, on those when we have those meetings. And this is part of the reason why that idea came to mind. So with that said, we're going to sign off. Actually, we didn't do too bad. We're still under an hour, but uh, thank you for listening to The Real Issue Podcast. As you go out this week, please go out, be his ambassador, love those who are in opposition to what you and I believe, who have no intention of believing what we believe, but love them anyway as Jesus would love them. As you do that, go out and give them heaven. We'll be back with you next week. Lord bless. Bless.